0: Good afternoon. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker today. I think you guys all know me. I'm Catherine Robinette. Um, our speaker today is a graduate from this program, Mike Allison. He did his undergraduate degree in economics, actually at Amherst, but then made his way to an MD at SUNY Downstate. He then joined us here for the IMEM residency, that he then turned into a six-year post MD training with the Critical Care Fellowship as well. Uh, He's currently practicing at St. Agnes and is here to talk to us today about volume responsiveness in the critically ill. So help me welcome Mike.
1: Thanks Catherine. You can hear me okay? Thumbs up, good. All right. So I wanna talk about volume responsiveness in the critically ill. It's a topic that I started getting into as a medical student had an attending in the emergency department at uh, Kings County Hospital in New York. And we decided to do an IVC study. IVC was was all the rage then. So we did this study. We were able to publish a a small series uh, in in the literature. And then I just went deep into the the literature. I just, as you know, when I was here, I was into ultrasound and trying to figure out how to predict everybody's volume responsiveness. Um, But, As you'll see by the end of this talk, there's a lot of caveats and a lot of ins and a lot of outs. So uh, I like to subtitle this talk Lessons from Lebowski et al. So disclaimers up front, uh, no Russian officials influenced anything in this talk, um, but I may have consumed a few white Russians at some point. So if you notice any errors, I blame it on the alcohol. Let me leave you with this. If you came to the lecture today thinking that by the end you would find the answer, the holy grail, the test, the assessment to help you determine the volume status of your patients and whether they're going to respond, uh, you are not going to get that. You would, if you thought that you were, you'd be looking like this by the end of the, the lecture. But we're going to go through a bunch of pitfalls in the assessment of volume responsiveness. But first I want to present a case. This is a real case. This is a real case of two physicians, Dr. Dude and Dr. Walter. Dr. Dude trained in internal medicine, grandfathered into emergency medicine. Um, He's sort of a flower child. He's very laid back. Uh, It's very surprising he wears his pager out bowling when he's an emergency physician, but he likes to wear that pager. Uh, And he's gonna be seeing our, our patient in the emergency department. Whereas Dr. Walter, as you can see, fairly intense, fairly, uh, fairly intense guy, and he's the intensivist in the, in the story. And the patient's uh, a friend of theirs, a guy by the name of Donnie. So Donnie's a 41-year-old. He comes into the emergency department with cough and weakness, and the only thing we know is he's got a bad heart. He ends up being diagnosed with pneumonia. He has a fever, hypotensive, tachycardic hypoxic. He has a lactate that's 4.1. He gets initial appropriate antibiotics rapidly. He gets a 30 milliliter per kilogram fluid bolus. He's placed on high flow nasal cannula. A repeat lactate is 3.5 and his mean arterial pressure after this is 52. So Dr. Dude takes control of the situation. He's seeing Donnie in the emergency department, and he's done this great assessment so far, following guidelines. But now he wants to know, should I give more fluids? the question that we're faced with nearly every single day that we take care of the critically ill. Dude's prone to uh, an occasional acid flashback, as you recall. So he flashes back to 2001, and he's remembering the the literature and this uh, study that you may know that looked at usual care compared to a continuous scvo2 monitor and once that came out the world changed and we started giving our patients tons and tons of of fluid a couple years later a a society convened a, a conference and a campaign to make guidelines for the treatment of this disease septic shock first guidelines came out in 2004 but dude's been practicing for a while so he's seen iterations in 2008 2012 and then again in 2016 and by way of acid flashback tangent he wonders why they name the guidelines the year before they come out because these came out in 2017 shouldn't they be named 2018 so they have a longer shelf life just like a new car but anyway i digress so he knows that the surviving sepsis campaigns for nearly all that time kept cvp and dynamic measures and all these things from that 2001 study But he's an enlightened dude. He gets his podcasts. He listens. He's watching YouTube and he knows what's going on. He knows that in the critically ill patient in shock, you flip a coin 50% chance they're volume responsive, 50% chance they're not. He's read all the literature, most of it observational, knowing that fluids are bad. In the patient with ARDS, excess fluids, poorer outcomes. Renal failure, high volume resuscitation, poor outcomes, leads to more RRT. If you have all-cause patients in the critically ill, the higher fluid balance associated with higher mortality. So he knows that fluids aren't the save-all like we thought in the early 2000s. So he wants to be judicious in how he gives his fluids. He remembers a, a couple of articles on CVP showing that both responders and non-responders had about the same CVP. And if you think that CVP of zero tells you you're going to respond, it didn't. If you think that CVP of 16 tells you that you're not going to respond, you might. So you guys are an advanced audience. You know all of this stuff. This interesting study done on normal healthy volunteers in the early 2000s, probably medical students, pulmonary artery catheters in each of them and an A-line in each of them looked at the change in CVP so you notice the CVP went down when stroke volume index went up. The CVP went up and stroke volume index never changed. So there's really no relationship between CVP or the change in CVP in our volume responsiveness. And you all know that famous tale by Dr. Merrick from uh, almost 10 years ago about how if you wanna use CVP in treating your patients, your patients better be horses and you better be a veterinarian. So, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign in 2016 convened, they published in 2017, and for the first time now, they are suggesting not CVP driven resuscitation, but dynamic variables over static variables. And Dude's are aware of, of all of this, but he also knows that when you poll physicians, not, not poll physicians, when you look at what physicians actually do in Europe, about 200 centers um, with Patients enrolled from each. Static measures used about half of the time. Dynamic measures, much less frequently used. The use of ultrasound uh, and VTI to look at volume responsiveness, 2% in this study. Half of the physicians didn't even look at any variable. So that's only the people who were monitored 50-50. Most of the patients weren't even monitored to see if they even responded to this fluid bolus. So the tension comes back, and now he's focused on Donnie. Donnie's still sick with a map of 50, and he's not sure what to do. He ponders, what is this volume responsiveness that we're all talking about? And he wants to get everyone on the same page. So this volume responsiveness is giving a volume challenge. It could be 500 milliliters of crystalloid. Some of the literature actually uses colloid. 250 ml of of that. So the literature varies on the amount, but you give the volume You notice an increase in stroke volume or cardiac output And if it goes up anywhere between 10 or 15% again the literature varies here. That's volume responsiveness So will the fluid augment our cardiac output? And why are we doing this assessment? We want to see where we are on the Starling curve You know the Starling curve. So if you give that preload challenge a volume and the stroke volume changes, by very little, you're not going to be responsive to fluid, don't give it. Whereas if you're on that ascending portion of the Starling curve, you give the volume, you see the response, you would want to give these patients a fluid challenge, or you could. Dude's not sure what to do, he doesn't know where Donnie is on his Starling curve, so he calls up and tries to get some advice. On the other end of the line is Dr. Walter, and Dr. Walter, Dude was afraid of this call. Dr. Walter has been known to be aggressive. He's shock trauma trained, so he's a very aggressive guy to begin with. He likes the most invasive of, of techniques to, to monitor his patients. And he does have that former military background. So Walter asks, Dr. Walter asks Dr. Dude, does Donnie need more fluids? So Dude just says, no, you know, what's in vogue right now? I'm minimizing fluids starting an early vasopressor. That's that's all I think he he really needs. Um, But Dr. Walter doesn't like that. He says, well, did you check his volume responsiveness? Dude starts talking. He's a little bit rambling about spontaneous breathing, the lack of an arterial line and and making some excuses as to why he can't get some accurate assessment of his volume responsiveness. Walter says, well, go ahead and check his IVC. I know you have an ultrasound down there. I've seen it when I've been down. Dude starts thinking that You know, this is initially validated in the mechanically ventilated. Their tidal volumes were greater than 8 cc's, who does that anymore? So I don't even know if this is going to be accurate. Walter then tells him, well, you can try this passive leg raise. Gets a little dig in at him at the same time. Dude doesn't like it, but he doesn't have a way of continuously monitoring the stroke volume or the cardiac output. And he tells Dr. Walter, you know, that that passive leg raise, that auto-transfusion, that bolus of fluid from the lower extremities and the splanchnic circulation back to the heart, that estimates about 300 mLs. You know that effect is very rapid. You know it happens within a minute, and we have to assess the patient right then and there. So I can't use something in two minutes or four minutes. So it has to be really rapid. I just don't have that capability. So, you know, Walter again reiterates the need to measure something measured some sort of dynamic indice. now quoting the surviving sepsis campaign the dude thinks there's a lot of ins and a lot of outs and he's so confused about the volume responsiveness literature he doesn't know what to do but he knows that Dr. Walter is really prone to aggression Dr. Walter knows what car dude drives so in order to appease him and to calm him down he goes ahead and does a scan of the IBC of Donnie and he gets this image very reluctantly dr dude gets on the phone again and calls back dr walter to tell him about the results and while they're talking they actually find some common ground because you may know or you may not know that donnie happens to be a bowling teammate of both dr dude and dr walter and there's a league match coming up so they have to get him better he's their their wild card with the bowling So they tell each other, we're going to go into the literature, we're going to go look through everything, and we're really going to dissect this. We're not just going to follow guidelines, we're going to go and figure out what's really going to help to make Donnie better. And to start this, they realized that a volume assessment requires two things. Preload assessment and stroke volume. So preload, you're going to do some sort of augmentation and an assessment of the stroke volume. I'm getting a little repetitive but it's for a point you have to do two things change preload in some way and measure stroke volume change and you notice i use stroke volume and cardiac output interchangeably stroke volume is probably the better thing to look at because cardiac output adds the variable of heart rate that might change during some of your maneuvers so how are we going to change preload four methods right now. There are a couple more. These are the ones that have been most documented most written about in the literature. Take a fluid bolus. So remember, when we give a fluid bolus, we're not predicting volume responsiveness. We are assessing volume responsiveness. We have already given fluid. And we know that 50% of patients won't respond to fluid. So it's possible that you are giving fluid to a patient that will not respond to it. So remember, it's an assessment, not prediction. It's not reversible and 50% of patients won't respond. You can use heart-lung interactions. So if you don't wanna give the bolus, you can use heart-lung interactions. And what are the heart-lung interactions? If you put a patient on mechanical ventilation, you are going to change their intrathoracic pressure. They're now getting positive intrathoracic pressure. The right side of the heart is going to have a decreased preload and an increased afterload on that heart during your inspiration. So that during expiration, a couple of heartbeats later, that decreased preload from the, left, from the right heart reaches the left heart and you have decreased stroke volume during expiration in your patients. So let's just use the mechanical ventilator that 50% of our patients are on in the ICU and use that to determine their volume responsiveness. Well, they look at the literature and find that you can't be spontaneously breathing. So not just not ventilated. If you're on mechanical ventilation, awake, alert, and spontaneously breathing, it's not valid. They have to be completely sedate and/or paralyzed. You need mechanical ventilation with high injurious tidal volumes. It's not been really validated in patients with poor compliant, poorly compliant lungs. So in our ARDS patients, you're gonna set them to a low tidal volume, but you think that maybe I can just increase the tidal volume for a little bit, get that assessment. Something about the compliance of the lungs in our ARDS patients doesn't make this valid, these heart-lung interactions valid. And you can't have a dysrhythmia. You're measuring beat-to-beat changes in in many instances using the heart-lung interactions. Any atrial fibrillation, any atrial tachycardias are going to alter that. So fluid boluses we've gone over, heart-lung interactions. The end expiratory occlusion pressure, all right? It's a variation on the heart-lung interactions. You have an end expiration, you occlude the vent, you stop the vent, you are going to change the preload. You're basically taking away positive intrathoracic pressure from that patient. If you do that for greater than 15 seconds, you can assess the patient's change in stroke volume or cardiac output. If there's an increase, then you can determine maybe they will be volume responsive. So you're going to increase preload. The nice thing is that it's valid at any PEEP as it's been studied. The only downside is you might have a patient that's intolerant to doing a long-end expiratory occlusion maneuver. And if you have a 5% increase in your cardiac output, then you can, within reason, say that your patient might be volume responsive. But what this means is that you need to have a device that's going to actually be able to measure a 5% change accurately. The last, the passive leg raise. It's probably got the broadest use of any of, the, any of these changing of, of preloads. You, can, you have to use a continuous stroke volume assessment because as we discussed, as Dr. Dude pointed out to you all, the change in the stroke volume happens very quickly. Question of whether you should be able to use this or if it's valid in patients with intraabdominal hypertension. I don't think we have literature that really uh, sta- states whether it's valid in these patients and you might not want to give them an auto-transfusion when they have high intraabdominal pressures, and probably not going to be used in neurotrauma or the neuroICU uh, in patients who have increased ICPs. So now that we've adjusted the preload by any one of those maneuvers, we are going to measure stroke volume change, right? And this is where it gets really simple. You can use thermodilution. first in 1970, first described in 1970. Pulse pressure variation, stroke volume variation, late 90s, 2000s. TEE to look at some Doppler indices and to estimate stroke volume. TEE to look at SVC change, all invasive monitoring devices. Well, I thought I said this was easy, right? This is simple. Wait, so now we're on to TTE, external, minimally invasive, and you can use some VTI that you're all experienced with here to look at stroke volume. You can also look at the IVC. Some people have described looking at the internal jugular vein. The carotid artery. People have looked at the brachial artery. People have looked at the femoral artery. There's more. Bioimpedance, bioreactants, end tidal CO2 changes, and now the volume clamp method that's, that's gaining a little bit of traction because of its non-invasive nature. So it's easy, you just pick one and pick another, right? So what do you have to do? You have to change your preload. You can do things like fluid bolus and bioreactants. You can do a heart-lung interaction and check the VTI. You can do an end-expiratory occlusion pressure if you have a continuous stroke volume variation measurement with uh, machines that you might have available here. Um, Or a passive leg raise and look at the end tidal CO2. So take any of those preloads, compare it with any of the stroke volume changes, and you might be able to use that maneuver. Not all are compatible, not all have been studied. Some of them have studied a little, some have been studied a lot. Very, very confusing. So why don't we go through how valid these measures are, some of the common measures that you might use, some of their pitfalls, by way of starting with the gold standard. So Dr. Walter is going back to his days in Nam as a medic, where he was treating patients with pulmonary artery catheters, doing thermodilution, and he's on a, he's on a rant. We put this in the heart, it would curl around, we'd get it in place, and then we'd have this, uh, pay attention to the black line here. So we'd have this curve, we put in a bolus of cold saline, it would change the temperature at the thermistor tip over time, peaking and then trailing off. There was a Stuart Hamilton formula, we would calculate the area under the curve, and we would estimate a cardiac output, and with body surface area, a cardiac index. A Couple years later came this transpulmonary thermodilution technique. So not pulmonary artery thermodilution, but transpulmonary thermodilution, where you're putting in a cold saline bolus through a central line, doesn't have to be in the pulmonary artery, so a subclavian, an IJ, and you have a femoral arterial line with a thermistor tip that is measuring the changes in the temperature as the fluid goes through the heart, through the lungs, and into the systemic circulation. So you've got a slower uptake and a longer time to come down. The area under the curve of that gives you the cardiac output. Your first question is, well, is that reliable? How do they compare? Well, we've known since 1999 that thermodilution, no matter how you do it, is going to be accurate in calculating the cardiac output, whether it's PA catheter or a thermistor in the distal aorta, in this case, the femoral artery. But... Dude is a pragmatist. He says, we can do all these invasive things, but haven't we disproven the pulmonary artery catheter in studies like Pac-Man? And we're not even using this in any of our patients anymore. You're just thinking about non-Walter. So why are we using this if the monitoring device that's the gold standard hasn't even changed our patient outcomes? Walter reaches back into the literature and talks about some of the cardiac surgery patients and shows that in those subsets that there is some literature defending its use, which is why it's probably still still used, and in some select surgical patients as as well. But for all comers, dude's right that it hasn't been proven to improve mortality or to change anything. And he wants to know if we can be less invasive. So they start talking about other methods as they're pouring, pouring through the literature. And the one that comes up most often that's been around for so many years is the pulse pressure variation. So by way of introduction, you know that you can have a maximum pulse pressure variation, and with the heart-lung interactions, that pulse pressure comes to some minimum. You're taking the systolic and diastolic and the difference between those, and you're calculating a pulse pressure variation by taking the max, the min, and dividing by the mean. This has been studied so much that there are now uh, systematic reviews and meta-analyses that have pooled all these studies together and show that if you have a variation greater than 12%, it pretty pretty reliably predicts volume responsiveness. This is probably the most studied and the best test to use, except there are so many requisites that you need to meet in order for this to be valid, such as ventilated, not spontaneously breathing, high tidal volumes, and without any arrhythmias. So it's great for our colleagues who are in the operating room or anesthesiologists who wanna check that pulse pressure variation. They've got the patient completely synchronous with the ventilator. They can have a little bit higher tidal volume for a period of time to assess this. And it's a perfect maneuver. But what about patients in the ICU? This one group looked and found that about 17% of their patients could actually meet all these criteria to have pulse pressure variation be valid. So most of the patients in our ICU, you can't even use this maneuver to predict your volume responsiveness. So they talk about that, but Walter wants to talk about this device he's got in his closet. It was uh, used to be a Vigileo, but now it's got a very um, 2017 name, the EV1000, 2000, and it gives you all this data. It must be reliable, it must be helpful. So he wants to talk about this stroke volume variation that he's been hearing about. So not the pulse pressure variation, because pulse pressure variation is just an estimate of our stroke volume. It's just a surrogate. So why don't we just measure the stroke volume? And how do you do this? Well, you know with these machines, they they have to be attached to an arterial line, an invasive line. So they're minimally invasive or somewhat invasive machines. And they use something called pulse contour analysis to look at the area under the curve. And then they do a lot of math and then they spit out some variables. They tell you about the stroke volume variation beat to beat, they can tell you the stroke volume index. But we don't need to rely on invasive line in order to get these variables. If we have the experience, if we have the training, and if we're able to do point of care ultrasound and look at the velocity time integral. So let's talk about each of these in turn. So pulse contour analysis, again, area under the curve. There's three ways to have pulse contour analysis. Calibrated, which you may have heard of a PICO or a LIDCO system. Basically you're doing a thermodilution, finding out the real cardiac output, and then you're calibrating your your area under a curve to whatever that cardiac output is. Probably the most accurate if you're gonna look at stroke volume variations, stroke volume assessment. There's biometric calibrated, so such as the Edwards catheter, where you're putting in some uh, patient-specific details only. You're not calibrating it to a cardiac output, and they give you pulse contour analysis. There are other devices that are completely uncalibrated that give you stroke volume variation, stroke volume index. So you can imagine that the reliability may fall off if you're doing less calibration. Velocity time integral, this echo variable that we're doing by taking the apical five-chamber view, putting our pulsed Doppler at the aortic outflow track and measuring the velocity of blood over the time. So... Many of you who have, who have worked with Dr. Murthy and have uh, been around and been doing this know this already, but you know that cardiac output equation. You know how to calculate the vol- uh, volume of a cylinder, the area times the length, the area of a, of a circle. And you can get the area of the circle by measuring the LVOT outflow track in the parasternal long axis view. You can figure out this length using VTI in the apical 5 chamber view. And the volume is just going to be pi r squared. You're not calculating pi, you're calculating diameter, so you just divide by 2. So what it looks like in in real time is that you're going to measure this diameter, you're going to measure this VTI in the apical 5 chamber view, and you're going to be able to assess non-invasively that volume of blood that's leaving, that stroke volume with each beat. You get a picture that's something like this, You take the cursor and you make the envelope over it and it spits out a VTI. happens to be high in this this patient uh, from back in fellowship. And you can notice that there's some variation in the VTI in these patients. If this patient were meeting all the criteria, no spontaneous respirations, high tidal volumes, no dysrhythmias, you can look at the the, uh, stroke volume variation and have it be reliable. But as the same thing for pulse pressure variation, if you're not meeting any of those four criteria, the stroke volume variation is not reliable. So then you have to do something. You can look at the stroke volume index or the stroke volume, but you're going to have to do some sort of maneuver to change your stroke volume and then reassess it. A couple of caveats on this. Experience matters. So I want to tell you about two things. They're not published. I can't give you literature but uh, there's a a French intensivist who actually has data looking at VTI compared to uh, pulmonary artery thermodilution with perfect correlation. He's been doing the exam for 20 years. He personally did every single exam of VTI and it's no surprise that when you're that experienced that you can get some good correlation. We did a study here, we're trying to, to publish it. We took an emergency medicine fellow in ultrasound an emergency medicine fellow in cardiovascular disease, gave them about 50 VTI studies to get their experience, gave them 80 patients after that, and told them to do the VTI, calculate a cardiac output, and let's compare the results. How often were their results within 15% of one another? 60%, not great. So I think the experience really does matter, and you, and you have to have high reliability in order to do this. You need a quality ultrasound machine. So for the fellows in the room who are graduating, you don't know where you're going yet, maybe you do, and you don't know what machine they're going to have there. It might not be good as the machine you're using here. It is non-invasive, so it's a feather in its cap. But what can everybody do with relative reliability? It's been proven is look at the IVC. We can take the ultrasound, put it in the sub-siphoid position, look at our IVCs, and look at its collapse. And as you heard, Dr. Dude said, this has been validated in the mechanically ventilated. No spontaneous breaths. And 8 to 10 milliliters per kilogram of tidal volume with those two studies published in intensive care medicine in 2004. And they found, one found 12%, one found 18%. I summarized it and simplified it, that if you're seeing greater than 15% collapse, if you meet all those preconditions, you can give fluids and have a, a pretty good chance of being volume responsive. What about this? What about Donnie? This is Donnie's IVC, remember? Donnie is spontaneously breathing. He's on high flow. It's collapsing here more than 50% almost co- completely, down here a little bit, so there's some variation in, in where you're measuring it. But we, I think we all think it's collapsing at least some. Can we make some conclusions from the spontaneously breathing patient? So people have looked at this and if you look through the literature and you look through reviews, they're going to say no, you can't use it because the area under the ROC curve is pretty poor. And it is because the sensitivity and specificity are not very good, are both not very good. But what is fairly good is the specificity in this one study of 60 patients. They looked at a cutoff of 42% collapse and found that these all were volume responders, gold standard VTI. So greater than 42% collapse in our spontaneously breathing patients. Maybe give fluids, I put a question mark there. This is the one study, Uh, it's not a large sample size. And as we know with small studies, a single sender, maybe in 10 years that's going to change. So moving on, what about this passive leg raise? It's been written about a lot recently. Um, I don't wanna give my patients fluids if I don't have to uh and i know that my heart lung interactions aren't accurate in 83 uh, percent of the patients that i'm taking care of in the icu so can i use a passive leg race which is a the fourth type of preload challenge it's not a measurement tool it's a just a preload challenge so you have to pair it with something so dude knows that it's good for patients with dysrhythmias you can be in uh, atrial fibrillation and, and have this be valid It works in the spontaneously breathing patients, works in patients with low tidal volume, but you can't just use blood pressure. You can't use a non-invasive or even an invasive blood pressure. They're just not good enough. You need a continuous monitor of stroke volume and or cardiac output, because you're gonna see that effect within 60 seconds, sometimes 90 seconds in your patients. So you've gotta be careful when when using that. reliable in the abdominal hypertensive patient i don't know i don't think anyone really knows so interpret results with caution i wouldn't use it in in the neurologically injured patients that i'm treating the effects are fast right so you need to measure quickly and you need to pair it with something else you need to pair it with one of those green stroke volume measurement techniques whatever you have available the volume clamp method I want to talk about before we, we summarize, this is going to be written about more, you'll hear about it more. Uh, this is an interesting technology that happens to be a completely invasive way of measuring your stroke volume variation and your stroke volume index. This is just one system, there are other ones out there, um, and the real name I think is photoplethysmography. I don't think that's going to catch on, I don't think people are going to talk about that very much, um, but volume clamp method or the Panaz principle is what happens here. So what's happening, plethysmography of the fingers, there's a, a pressure bladder within these finger cuffs that will inflate until the artery in the finger does not pulse anymore, so it keeps a fixed diameter. So then it can calculate, well if I'm... Taking that systolic pressure and stopping the artery from pulsing, I can figure out how much pressure it requires. I can make a tracing of blood pressure over time. So it makes a blood pressure tracing, a completely non-invasive arterial blood pressure tracing. And then what does it do? More math. It calibrates it into a brachial artery signal by something else, some other mechanical device that sits on the, on the patient's um, antecubital fossa. And it takes that brachial artery signal. And then what does it do? Mathematically reads that pulse contour analysis to give you stroke volume variation, stroke volume index, and all those other things that we used to be able to get from our invasive arterial lines. But many of the patients that they've tried this on haven't been able to get a good signal. So its reliability is poor. The non-invasive portion is seen as as a good thing. So we're left here. Now wondering, having gone on a whirlwind tour of a lot of the different devices that are available, wondering why there are so many. If anyone was really good, why would we still be looking for more? So let's take a moment. Let's sort of tie this all together. So in preparing this talk, by the time I finished it, it was easy to become a volume-responsive nihilist because... If you look at the study sizes, the average study size is somewhere between 50 and 60 patients. They're typically single center, not multi-center, and we're drawing conclusions based upon these these sample sizes. We're pooling them together in meta-analyses to get bigger samples, but I don't know how uh, perfectly reliable that is. So that's one aspect of the volume responsiveness nihilism. The conflicts of interest. Let me tell you this, when you're looking at the NICOM, the NICOM is one of the uh, bioreactance devices. You place electrodes on the chest, it measures thoracic impedance, it comes back, it spits out a cardiac output, cardiac index for you. So if you look on the literature of this completely non-invasive device, which would sound like a a great thing to use with a passive leg raise, there are some positive studies. Every positive study has an author that has been a consultant with the company or has been on the board half of the literature shows that it's not all that accurate. Most of those studies have an author that is on a competing device medical board. So it's really hard, and, and that's just the ICOM. So if you look at all of the studies on, on these devices and maneuvers, it's, it's fraught with the potential for conflicts of interest. And I'm not claiming that anyone is not trying to be, to be accurate with their data, but they have a product to sell. So that causes some nihilism. How about the gold standard? I told you about thermodilution, transpulmonary and uh, pulmonary artery thermodilution. So a lot of the initial studies, like pulse pressure variation, were compared to pulmonary artery catheters. A lot of the subsequent studies were done in post-cardiac surgery patients, because that was the only subset of patients that were getting the pulmonary artery catheters after a while. And so the validity, the external validity of applying that to let's say a general surgical or a general medical ICU patient was criticized. So then people started changing the gold standard. Well, we're not putting in a pulmonary artery catheter so my gold standard is going to be VTI. Or my gold standard for the NICOM is going to be stroke volume variation from pulse contour. Which I've already told you about all the mathematical equations that have to go into that. So not having a really reliable gold standard or a gold standard that has shown unequivocally to change outcomes can make you a volume-responsive nihilist. The error limits. The error limits. So there's some literature on the error limits of each of these devices, and it's incredible to look at these devices that have 30 to 50 percent error limits, and then in the conclusion statement, authors are saying that these are very reliable. So. You have to know that the devices that you use may not be perfectly reliable. The assessment may not tell you whether the patient's really going to respond to that fluid bolus or if they're really not going to respond to that fluid bolus. And all these studies are trying to be less and less invasive, more hands off, no more PA catheters, no more central lines and, and femoral uh, arterial line thermistor tipped devices. We just want to find the non-invasive thing that we could put on the patient in the emergency department and do early on their resuscitation to tell us whether they need more fluids. But maybe that's not the right way for our sickest patients. Maybe less invasive means less accurate. Maybe the sickest patients need the most accurate the most invasive. So I just leave you with, with that general thought from having read through all of this literature. So you know there's a lot of ins, there's a lot of outs, and there's a lot of what have you's with everything regarding volume responsiveness in the critically ill. We didn't even talk about the RV failure that um, may make false positives in any one of the maneuvers and the assessments that we do on our, our patients. There's no one size fits all for our patients. I wish that there was, but there's no one size fits all. So you have to know a lot about your patients. You have to know their pulmonary compliance. You have to know what their ventilator settings are. You have to know what the right ventricle looks like and then choose the best method in order to determine the responsiveness thereafter. So, bad news. I'd like to dedicate the lecture to the memory of Donnie. He didn't make it. So, I have two ways of concluding this talk. The dude's going to conclude the talk first. The dude thinks that there's no convincing mortality benefit from any of these devices in volume responsiveness, and they have all have variable reliability. So why am I going to rely on that device if I can just take the basic tenets of good critical care that have come through, through the majority of literature over the past 10 years, and I'm going to minimize the fluids I give, I'm going to start my vasopressors early, and as soon as my patient is on the way towards recovery, I'm going to start aggressive de-resuscitation. So the dude... Is a, is a full-on volume responsive nihilist at, at this point. But Dr. Walter's a little bit different, and maybe this is the conclusion that you'll take home too, is that we know that our exam, and we know that our static variables such as CVP are completely unreliable. And those, these, though these devices have lack of precision, they have mathematical formulas that make, make them prone to error, Um, They may be be operator-dependent, but maybe using any device is better than a 50-50 guess with the correct training. So if we know the limitations and we're smart about how we apply our devices to our critically ill patients, apply the test rationally, we'll be doing better than just guessing. So I leave you with that. I'll take any questions. Thanks so much for your attention. Dr. Murphy. Thank you. That
0: was a great
1: talk. Thanks. Um, so what do you use? I have two questions. Yes. So um, I'm going to answer that question later on. I'm going to start with like a couple of caveats that will distract people for the first couple of minutes until I answer the question directly. I think that for the majority of people in this room, they're going to be forced to pick a device or to use a device and an assessment based upon where they train or where they train and then where they go to practice. So if you spend time perfecting your echo measurements and you can do that, then you're going to be able to, to use that. Um, if you don't get that training, like many fellows at other programs throughout the country uh, unfortunately don't may not have that training. Then you're going to have to use whatever devices there, be it an arterial line device or some of the less invasive ones. So at St. Agnes, we have the NICOM device. So I have used that. Um, I have used IVC uh, a, a deal, but you know I I know the limitations of the tests and I know the poor reliability. And maybe some of the residents get frustrated when I see that uh, collapsible IVC and I don't give fluids or if I see something that has little collapse, but I might try a small bolus anyway. So I think I know the limitations of the of the test. I don't think our cardiac ultrasounds are as, as sophisticated as what I trained with here. So my VTI measurements aren't that reliable, I don't think.
0: And so I, I, part of my take on volume responsiveness, like all, all of that data is that we keep trying to look for a single answer to complex question. The question is, this fluid makes sense to the patient in front of me. Right. The volume responsive. is only one piece of that answer. Right? Yeah. The, the first piece is actually: Do you think increasing the cardiac output is going to benefit the patient? So does the patient have evidence of oxygen-dependent shock? Your lactate's normal. Your base deficit's normal. Even if your blood pressure is low, it's a little bit hard to theorize that increasing cardiac output is going to help them, even if they're even if they're volume responsive. So, I, I think. It's one of like three or four things that you're using together to decide about that fluid focus. And one of the reasons I like echo is even outside of ETI, there's other information on that echo that helps you add to that decision-making process.
1: You certainly understand the RV anatomy a lot better when you do echo, so you know if your other tests are going to be potentially giving you false positives. I agree. It's not
0: not necessarily a false positive. Maybe the stroke volume will increase. It's just the cost of the fluid is more than the Potential benefit of that stroke binding. Yeah. So, I think so long as we keep trying to look for one answer to a multivariate question, we're going to keep having crisscrossing studies, right? It's just it's a really right. complicated question. And what is the stroke binding variation what,
1: how volume is it? Absolutely. And I think that's part of why I presented a, a number of different things and to demonstrate that there is no one size fits all. And then you alluded to this, but I'll say it more directly. Just because someone's volume responsive, doesn't need, mean they need the fluids, right? doesn't mean you have to give a, a bolus. So I think that's some misinterpretation from the literature, and people have started saying you should bolus patients until they're not volume responsive anymore. Uh, that might not be the right move, because at what cost to the lungs, at what cost to the, to the kidneys, are you going to keep giving them fluids, keep giving them fluids? Thanks so much. I'll be up here for questions if you have them.